there was a performance of uh, we don't talk about Bruno. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about Bruno wasn't even fucking nominated. Right. Like what? What the fuck? What the fuck is this? Like they decided to talk about Bruno. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. How are you? Always open with a question, Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. We had our big 100th episode last week. Mm -hmm. The Batstravaganza. The Batstravaganza, which the recording session came over four hours. Yes. And yeah, it was I a long, long talk after cutting out unnecessary silence and, uh, you know, repetitive stuff, I was able to slim it down to a nice three hour cut. All right. We're, we're in under the Snyder cut. So I'm going to take that as a big old W. <laughs> I guess we have to, but, uh, yeah, I, I've already heard from a few people that we know that have listened to it and have enjoyed it. So it was a long haul. I'm glad it was worth it. You know, uh, maybe maybe if people enjoyed that in the future, we can uh, take this scientific method to some other franchises, because I had a lot of fun uh, kind of changing the format up a little bit. Sure. Yeah. This episode, we're going more traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Disney's Turning Red, which has been out for a little while now, um, but it was one of the movies that had a full round of online discussion while you were uh, toiling away in community theater and <laughs> you make it sound like I'm in salt mines. It, it is something I enjoy doing. <laughs> yes. Well, and technically you're still running production of, of that particular play, but we yeah, have you yeah. back for our recording sessions again. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the podcast, we're finally going to get to the streaming homework that I last announced for us. Uh, the film Vox Lux came out in 2017 and it was it came up during one of our lists we had you know listeners send in feedback and i forgot exactly what the context was it might have had something to do with music and film i don't remember but somebody said vox lux was a good movie so i assigned it because we never got around to watching that so i remember when it came out i was i was interested in it but i also remember Natalie Portman's makeup looked like just like Black Swan. So I was like, is this like a Black Swan 2 thing? I right. Yeah. I mean, I think the marketing was probably doing that on purpose. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. We can get into that when we talk about the movie. But uh, something else happened between now uh, or last week when we did that. And between then and now. Between then and now. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah. The temporal parameters i'm trying to set and that is the oscars happened again Uh, annually oscars right i know we did talk about predictions so i feel like we kind of owe it to ourselves to see how we did there i mean there's a lot to talk about with this year's oscars besides just the slap heard around the world but Mm -hmm. we could slap that down yeah Yeah. the pursuit of slappiness (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> I hope you made that up. It, honestly, I've seen so many memes that it's possible. It's just like ingrained somewhere. You you absorbed that. I like, don't think there's any original takes on the Will Smith slap at this point. No, I don't think so either. And by the time this actually comes out and people are listening to it, Will have entered into like post irony memes about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, we'll have, we'll officially be like week two of the slap uh, occurrence. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll talk about that briefly, um, but I, I just want to talk about the awards themselves. They did happen. Mm. It's not what anyone's talking about, but they did occur. Yes. Um, now, I wasn't actually able to watch the telecast. I thought I was going to. I had it fired up on my smart TV, the ABC app that was comes free with the TV. It's mm. red carpet. It's live, blah, blah, blah. Then the show's supposed to start and it cuts to some pre-recorded Russia, Ukraine news. Okay. And I'm like, well, what is going on? And then I went online to see if there was any free places you could watch it. There are not, unless you're already signed up with a cable provider. Um, the Oscars. I didn't are... have rabbit ears to pick it up on uh, tube TV if I were to own one. So I just had to follow along on Twitter and watch the clips, you know, when they were, when they were going on. The Oscars are an Ouroboros snake. It, it mm-hmm. is just eating its own tail. Like they want people to watch because their ratings are shit, but right. then they don't make it available to watch. And then, you know, right. they cut out half the awards and add all these fucking stupid bits and performances and, and cut out the stuff I actually want to see, like Samuel L. Jackson getting his Lifetime Achievement Award. And, you know, like right. they cut the stuff that's about the movies and they're filling it with all these dumb bits. And then and the, the weirdest thing at the beginning of the telecast there was this big, long, like, credit intro of every fucking presenter and every celebrity that was there that night. And it took, like, it felt like 10 minutes of them just saying mm-hmm. celebrity names. And it's like, yeah, they're all there. It's the fucking Oscars. <laughs> Why I, I wouldn't just, they be? Right. They they make the most unwatchable show. Right. And then they get all mad when people don't watch it. It's it's just like they are that meme of the the guy on the bike who sticks the stick in his own spokes and like flips right that is the oscars and then i think when it comes down to it it ended up being longer this year than last year like by like 20 minutes or something like that even though they gave out something like eight awards before while the red carpet was happening Mm -hmm. they and uh the, the official telecast hadn't started. They like quietly gave away awards. And this is, this is the beginning of the end because, or maybe the middle of the end, I think it's been ending for a while because I remember when the Grammys started doing that, mm. the Grammys used to be like, you know, this big pomp and circumstance, fancy ballroom gown affair. Yeah. And then slowly over time it became more and more about the performances and less and less about the awards and i remember the there was a year where they had like a chiron at the bottom 
that said, you know, while the commercials were happening, these are the awards we gave away. Oh, and I was God. like, fuck this. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to watch like, you know, who, who the fuck ever LMFAO do a uh, performance of God knows what. Uh, so uh, speaking, speaking to that, there was, there was a performance of, uh, we don't talk about Bruno. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about Bruno wasn't even fucking nominated. Right. Like what, what the fuck, what the fuck is this? Like they decided to talk about Bruno. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. The the way the theater was set, like it, it in general had kind of a golden globes vibe, which is right. There are mul- not... multiple uh, presenters. Yeah. Multiple hosts. Uh, I think Amy I, I... Schumer was like sort of the unofficial main one because I, most of the clips I saw were of her. Yeah, I I mean she had I think kind of the most bits and stuff. Um which by the and- way, I but when that was announced, I was not terribly excited about that idea. Um but the three most hosts of the, or, or Amy Schumer. The three hosts, but also Amy Schumer. Because she's I don't know, she's sort of fallen in the last seven years. Actually uh, of of all the monologues and stuff that I saw her do, it was it was decent. Like it was, it wasn't a bad job. I think she could have held her own. I thought she was a solid host. I thought she was a solid host. And, and she, she's kind of, she's been doing like some shows like during the pandemic, she did like a home cooking show with her husband. That was, you know, that uh, Ashley watched. That was really entertaining. Like, like she's, she's sticking around. And I think she's, um, I think her humor is maturing a little bit, not in that her previous, there was anything wrong with her previous humor, but uh, I, I think she's I don't know. I'm I'm I've always been a fan of Amy Schumer and I don't buy the whole her stealing jokes thing. I, anyway, whatever. That's all other thing. I thought she did a good job hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah, she was the standout to me as well. Of what I um, saw, it was pretty solid Oscar material. Like it wasn't any better than that. Like uh, I wasn't but- like, you know my sure, ribs yeah, were yeah. hurting laughing or anything. I was like, Oh, okay. Like you're as good as the average comedian. They get to host these things. A lot of presenters who had just like too much weird quippy banter that had nothing to do with the category. Like, like, yeah, I get it. You're going to come out and you're going to do like a one liner or whatever, but it doesn't need to be a skit. It doesn't need to be like one or two lines. Please keep it about the topic. I get it. There's only so many fucking costume design jokes you can make. But right. like, right. I, I don't know that it's just it's painfully trying to stay relevant and it's not succeeding. It's so the Oscars are so lacking in self-awareness. Well, that's true. Let's go ahead and talk about some of these categories and see what won here. Now, I should mention the movie that ended up winning the most Oscars Mm -hmm. was Dune. Now, most of those Oscars were given out before the show started. Oh, yeah. Um, So uh, because they were, for the most part, they were kind of in the technical categories. Yeah, we we can't let the the techie people talk because they're not beautiful celebrities. So among these early categories... Dune went home with four awards. I'm reading this off the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score by Hans Zimmer, um, and Best Production Design. 
It also won Best Cinematography. And well, that's a big award. And Best yeah. Visual Effects. Cinematography and visual effects were in the live broadcast. And we didn't mention in the uh, the last podcast that we did that the cinematographer for the new Batman is the same cinematographer who worked on Dune. And that is Greg Frazier. Oh, interesting. So yeah. both of those movies, you know, look great, very moody yeah, very and atmospheric visual. and yeah. Yeah. And very dark. He he, he kind of plays in shadow. And so it works for his style, um, particularly in the Batman. But yeah, I mean, uh, I came away I'm with a... six awards. The takeaway from the telecast wouldn't be that they were the big winners that night because nobody saw all those awards given out. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, the, I think the takeaway was that, that Coda won really big because um, they won a cu- couple of the, you know, uh, big, big awards, uh, if you will. I, I am surprised. I thought uh, The Power of the Dog would have a, a better showing. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I kind of thought they they might be um, in the running for cinematography. Um, they were at a point in time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I thought also uh, for the score, um, because I remember I, the, the score for Dune is great, but I remember The Power of the Dog, the score, like, informed what the story is like it, it actually like changed the way you view certain scenes so i i think that right uh i think that might have got a little bit a little bit robbed that was a johnny greenwood score correct yes uh johnny greenwood i just uh, remember Radiohead. like yeah. it filled scenes with tension that uh yeah that that might not have you know been there and because again we you know we you can go back and listen to our review of that movie but there was a lot of stuff not said in the power of the dog and i feel like the score said a lot of it so i i don't know i think it uh contributed maybe a little bit more to the overall storytelling than the dune score which was great you know you can't go wrong with Hans zimmer right well he's an industry favorite and yeah this happens fairly often in the Academy Awards, but like the movie that the most average viewer will have seen usually sort of sweeps the technical awards. Yeah. Um, now things like score and costume design and, and those kind of things can kind of be placed elsewhere, especially if there's a period piece somewhere in there, but Zimmer has been around for a while. He's very well regarded in his industry. So that's not, Terribly surprising, even though no, it's it's not surprising. I um, think that the Power of the Dog score was more memorable, but um, let's just talk about Coda winning Best Picture, which Coda was the last nominated film that I saw. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I I mean, I I wanted to see it just because it was like the only one that I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and- on Apple TV, by the way. Yeah, Ashley watched it. She, I mean, she really liked it. She, she mm-hmm. encourages me to watch it. Um, so there was a lot of talk early on about, you know, back when Power of the Dog was the favorite to win. Yeah. Like the last time we talked about the Oscars, I had predicted it was going to sweep. And I think if the Oscars had happened just a couple of weeks after that, then it would have. But I think it peaked early and Coda kind of slipped through the cracks there as more and more Academy voters were were watching it 
Um, this is why I hate the Oscars so much. But I, yes, well, it, it is kind of one of those things, you know, where it's like, you know, it's all politicking and timing and particularly it's timing. And, and you know, people get these stacks of screeners mailed to their door and then they they kind of put it off if they're even, you know, really a lot of money that goes into marketing. Like, oh, sure. And the campaigns and all of that. Yeah. yeah. But both were you know, strong contenders. Coda was a bit more of like a, like critical darling. Uh, so was power mm-hmm. of the dog for that matter. But there was some talk early on about how power of the dog was going to be snubbed because it was produced by Netflix um, or uh, they owned it. And that was the primary place where people were watching it. And some had said that the industry would never award a would never award Netflix specifically because they are in open competition with the theater system. But what um, the fuck is Apple TV? Like that's exactly. a streamer. It is. Now I obviously both movies would have had to have some sort of theatrical run to qualify. So I'm sure they had an East coast, West coast, maybe, you know, uh, limited run before the year was I, out. I but, also, I remember the power of the dog being in theaters. I remember having the option to see that. I never mm-hmm. remember hearing about Coda being in theaters. And, and I mean, like, you know, again, we're still, you know, we're still in a pandemic and, and coming out of a pandemic, I guess, I don't know what, I don't know where we are in a pandemic. A pandemic exists. Uh, no, but I will say at the end of the year, when when all of these movies were in theaters competing for people's attention and dollars, yeah. that was when we were, when um, Omicron was really kicking off. No, but, so, but my my point is half of these are, are half of the best picture nominees were primarily viewed streaming. Yeah, I mean, even Dune was released simultaneously on HBO Max. So was King Richard, you know, mm-hmm. Coda was on Apple TV. Don't Look Up was Netflix. Belfast um, was on Amazon, I believe. Yeah, like mm-hmm. more than half then. Uh, so I. But I, I think it's with the, the, the thought behind this was that Netflix as a company is openly sure. hostile to the to the theatrical experience. Well, yeah, and I mean, they, some they are people, the ones that put their name on changing the game. Right. And they're the ones that are, are always sort of uh, setting the template yeah. um, for how these kind of things run. Although not as much anymore, to be honest, but there, so there was an idea out there that like, Oh, power of the dog is, is the Netflix movie. Therefore it won't win. I think, you know, the fact that Kodawan kind of disproves that a little bit. And it, one of the big things that is being talked about is that it's a uh, it was the first streamer to win best picture and uh, the uh, best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Troy Kotzer. Yes. Is the first uh, deaf person to win that award. Yes. Uh, he's only the like second deaf person to win an Oscar. I think that I don't know. Uh, it. it it's something like that. Um, yeah. But yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's not many. Yeah. Um, um, and I will say I, as a person who liked Coda, I didn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't over the moon about it. I liked it just fine, mm-hmm. but he's the best thing in it. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, I think so you, he's, you think he deserved it a hundred percent. Yeah. 
Like after I, I saw that his his performance um, uh, drew me in, and there was a, a a realness to it and a visceral quality to his to his performance that other people in the movie, some of the bigger leads, I felt were a little TV movie. Um, okay. But but he, I felt like he was very good. Also, nobody talks about this, but Coda is a remake of a French film that came out not too very long ago. Oh, interesting. Uh, but yeah, so uh, let's see. Uh, best act. Uh, let's go best director. Best director. <laughs> uh, Jane Campion won for Power of the Dog. That was the their big award. Yeah. And I I I really don't think we can you know have that hard and fast you know, rule anymore that the director and the picture pair, it seems like you know, more and more that's not happening. I, I honestly think when they expanded the best uh, picture, I think they did it to intentionally split director and picture. I think yeah. pretty much since then it's, it's happened more often than not that one wins, you know, one movie wins one and something else wins the other. So yeah. Um, best actress went to Jessica Chastain for the eyes of Tammy Faye mm-hmm. I uh, movie. I did not see, it. although people did like it. Um, there was a big, strong campaign for Kristen Stewart for Spencer, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately it went to Chastain. Uh, we'll come back to best actor, um, best supporting actress, uh, went to Ariana DeBose for West Side Story. Still haven't seen it. It's available now to stream, but it is three hours. So it's going to take a little bit for me to see it, but I I will eventually. Yeah, I've I've heard good things. I've heard mostly good things. I've heard rapturous things about it. I guess just the fact that it's like a remake of an old musical that's fine the way it is. Like, I don't know. There was a lot of things about it where it's like, I'm not pumped per se, but (laughs) if you keep telling me it's good, maybe I'll believe you. I mean, the original's good. Yeah, I know, it's, you know, it's I know the music's great. good. So I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, at least watchable. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but I, or maybe even more than fine. But it's just the idea. It's, I don't know. Like if, if Martin Scorsese's next movie was a remake of Singing in the Rain, I, I would. That's not like the thing I necessarily want to see him do. Sure, but I get it. Uh, best adapted screenplay went to Coda, so I'm a guess. I'm guessing adapted because it was uh, a remake. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, best original screenplay went to Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, and and I feel like everything. And I think you said this on the last time we talked about the Oscars was that Belfast was going to be the like this year's King speech that like comes in out of nowhere and just starts winning a bunch of stuff, and right. it ended up being Coda. And best animated film ended up going to Encanto, which is not surprising. Well, there was okay. Uh, It's not because Encanto was huge. It did really well. And Um, it's the most recent of the list. Yeah, but I know there was there has been a lot of hype around uh, uh, Mitchell's versus the machines. And they were, I think, kind of a dark horse. uh, because I remember that that movie seemed like it kind of took people by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, I I think um, I don't know if you were following on Twitter, but like a lot of animators got their feathers ruffled by 
you know, some of the jokes they were making in regards to animated features, uh, not even jokes, but there's like this, it is very much an industry thing to uh, write off animation as just kitty stuff, just kids right. fair. And, uh, you know, like uh, Flea uh, did not look like it's for kids. It was also nominated for best um, uh, international feature. Right. Uh, you, you know, and, and, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people seem to get really upset by that. Um, uh, I think it was it was either Phil Miller or Chris Lord in particular. And, you know, I I think that's kind of fair. Uh, no, you know, I'm, the, if the yeah. Oscars, if the if the uh, the Academy members who vote in these things had a had a wider palette for animation, we should see more diverse films, more world cinema represented, more, Absolutely. more, you know, a bigger range of adult films versus kids films, because like animes existed for fucking ever and totally. it's always pushed like the limits of animation. And it's usually not for kids. Yeah, um, exactly. And I just I think it's it's so frustrating. Uh, I mean, Miyazaki like sneaks in there because he has a Disney ties. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the most part, it's, you know, it's a, a lot of people in, in these industries, they, especially when it comes to stuff, they don't necessarily care about like animation. They just, they're like, uh, yeah, I went to the movies and saw Encanto with my kids. It was good, I guess. So we'll just vote for that one. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's I don't know. It's Which is really funny because I think the perception by like the mainstream is that, um, you know, Hollywood elitists are all like super stuck up and have like, you know, uh, refined taste, but it, it's, <laughs> it's actually the opposite. It's that they, most of them don't watch their screeners till the last minute if they watch all of them. <laughs> yeah. And most of the time they're just going with whatever they remember last. That's why movies can, you know, a campaign can peak two weeks too early. Like yeah, yeah. what happened with power of the dog. I mean, Encanto About was good. Don't get me no, wrong. In of the ones I saw, that I is really, probably my favorite on this list. But I did not see Flea or uh, Mitchell versus the Machine. I, no, I, and I'm not saying Mitchell's versus the Machine should have won because I haven't seen it either. It, it's yeah. more just you know, it, it's more just like the same attitude over this category, and uh, no mention of the fact that you know animated features were one of the few in Hollywood that didn't have to shut down for nearly as long during the pandemic. Best uh, foreign language feature went to drive my car, which is not surprising because it was also nominated for best picture, mm -hmm. but let's talk about it. Best actor it, it, went to, went to Will Smith for King Richard, which mm -hmm. I went back and listened because I wasn't sure exactly what I said, but I said, if power of the dog sweeps, then it'll go to Benedict Cumberbatch. If it's more of a award potpourri, then it's going to go to Will Smith. You were right. I mean, it, it was that. So that's just on the, the award itself. I, I do like that performance. It's an important it's an important move in his career for a lot of reasons, um, most of which were completely squandered by the slapping. Yeah. So if you're somehow not familiar with what happened, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if you have somehow not heard about it, uh, Chris Rock was presenting for best documentary feature. 
Um, he came out, he made some jokes, uh, and then he made a, a particular joke about Jada Pinkett and, you know, her her hair. Um, she has alopecia, uh, and he made a joke, uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm excited to see G.I. Jane 2, which... Right isn't a great joke by any metric no uh, by, it's least of all by chris rock's metric yeah it's it, you know it's dated it's not funny uh you know it's it's judging someone on their appearance whatever you think about the joke is valid but then uh will smith uh takes a moment walks up on stage everybody's going what the fuck is happening and slaps Chris Rock right across the mouth. Mm-hmm. He goes back to his seat. The award ceremony uh, is stunned. It's just ground to a halt. And Will Smith yells, uh, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Like at the top of his lungs. Yeah, which if you watch the American telecast, they were able to bleep it in time. But there's yeah. enough clips out there from Australia and elsewhere where the sensors are different, where you can you can audibly hear it. Yes. Yeah. Clear as a bell. And, you know, people didn't know what was happening. They didn't know if it was a bit. They didn't know if it was staged. Uh, I, right, mostly know. because uh, Chris Rock just rolled with it. Like, yeah. oh, OK, so it could have been it could have been, you know, depending on who was on the other end of that joke. Absolutely. Um, that could have went so differently. Chris and Rock. One could say it wouldn't have happened at all if it had not been Chris, Chris Rock. Uh, no, that, no. Here's the thing. I, I mean, sure. There, there seems to be some kind of history of, of uh, beef between him and Will Smith, but here's the thing about the fucking Oscars. Mm-hmm. They have always done this. Like, this like Friars roast humor kind of always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it's lighter than others, depending on who the host is. Uh, and you know, it's, I not- would say that they're spiciest. It's nothing like what you're getting, what you're getting on a real roast. No, no, no. It's, it's like, you know, diet roast. It's right. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's that style of like, you know, it's going to be deprecating. We're going to tease you. Yeah. Everybody knows ribbing. it's, it's all meant in good fun, right? Sometimes it's really not funny, whatever. You know, did Chris Rock cl- cross the line with his joke? That's for other people to decide. It is absolutely completely inappropriate what Will Smith did. I'm going to I'm going to even say sometimes it, it catches you at the wrong time, whatever. You react in a way you're not expecting. That's giving him the biggest benefit of the fucking doubt right the people i'm condemning the most are the academy for not escorting his fucking ass out into the lobby at least to fucking have a conversation with him right but instead he sits down hey this is editing cassidy again um i just wanted to kind of splice in here that uh, more information about this Will Smith, Chris Rock stuff has come out since we recorded this. So, you know, apparently, um, there are reports that Will Smith was talked to by, uh, security and that they, had, uh, talked about getting him to leave or tried to get him to leave. And 
the uh, the he refused. So obviously, none of us are there. None of us can really confirm or deny any of this. But I just want to put it out there that we are aware that there are some reports that uh, Will Smith was less than cooperative when dealing with the security after the slap happened on the broadcast. So, you know, believe what you want. The information is out there. Maybe we'll never know. Uh, Chris Rock is visibly shaken, but he fucking keeps on going like a pro. He's like, let's just, you know, let's just get to the categories. Uh, 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 He just moves on from it. The show tries to, but it's so awkward and weird and tense after that. And again, like what the what the fuck academy for right. not taking will smith out of there instead he gets to sit watch the rest of the the show then he wins and they give him a fucking platform they give him uh 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 like it's like seven minutes of of unedited like you know they don't play him off they don't do anything mm. he i'm sorry he they give him a standing o absolutely it's disgusting it is yeah disgusting and you, you know he gets up there and he's talking about love and and all this bo- like fuck you dude like and here's the thing i think will smith's a great actor i think he deserved the award but his behavior was unacceptable and the minimum punishment he should have received was not being able to give a speech not being able to to go and accept the, that award at that time. I agree. And and that was, that was sort of my take on it when all of this was happening. And I mean, if you've been following Twitter at all and you've been watching the reactions from all different sides and all different angles, it ranges from, you know, I mean, it's Twitter. So it ranges from <laughs> complete insanity and like mind worms to, yeah. to tacit endorsement. People are not only saying that Will Smith, uh, you know, like did the right thing, but you know, I've seen so many jokes about like, uh, well, they should have fucking slapped Amy Schumer too. And they shut her up and should, and I'm like, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. No, I, that, uh, that is not, that is not it. No, um, that is not <laughs> the right uh, attitude to have about this. Now, my thing when I was just kind of experiencing this as live as I could via Twitter, I thought it was like kind of a holy shit moment. Like, OK, well, this will make news like I was <laughs> kind of having fun with it because well, I mean, sir, it was an open hand slap. It, had he had like, you know, punched him in the face and then started kicking him in the ribs until Chris Rock was bleeding from the mouth. Then we would be having a real discussion about like, you know, it is an outrageous moment of drama between two multimillionaires and tuxedos. Right. right? Like, and it it kind of like plays upon the whole hypocrisy of like how all of these celebrities go up there and make it their soapbox to talk about whatever the issue of the day is and all of that. It kind of tears down that veneer. And so part of me was kind of enjoying it. I'm not going to lie. The, but again, the drama of it is, is I, I understand it's that reality TV. It's yeah, it's the fucking world. It's salacious, salacious as fuck. Chris Rock, his immediate response was, 
this is the greatest night in television. (laughs) Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And he's not wrong. Like that was that his reaction was funnier than the joke that that came before. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I I just wanted out there. I'm not saying that it should have happened or that Will Smith was acting um, appropriately. He absolutely Absolutely was not. My beef is not with with either, you know, all three of them, Jada, Will or Chris Rock. Good on Chris Rock for not pressing charges. He he knew what that moment was. Like I get all of that. It, but yeah, my but issue is with the Academy's response. God damn to them. It. I think it would have been absolutely appropriate to escort Will out and just have the presenter because you know it's supposed to be that it's supposed to be that they don't know who won the award until you really open that thing. Sure. I mean, a couple people obviously know, but the people who put the envelope in there, I don't know. I don't know exactly the process of how secret that all is. The best thing they could have done is escort Will out said, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to go home. And then when he eventually won the award and they opened it and they said, Will Smith for King Richard, and they should have had the announcer voice come out and say, you know, so and so will be will be uh, accepting on behalf, you know, the producer or whatever of King Richard will Let be Jada accepting. up there, whatever. I mean, you know, it, it, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yes, it just it should not have been Will Smith. It, and then it the shouldn't have been celebrated that it happened. The and then the speech he... was insane. Granted, he was very emotional. I mean, sure. I can only imagine the mix of emotions, right? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's simultaneously the best night of his life and the worst night of his career. Yes. And but he went up there and talked gibberish for about five minutes and talked about he made it sound like he was he made it sound like it was like he was on a mission from God to protect his wife from insults from Chris Rock, which is very weird. Um, Very weird. And of course, he's bawling and everyone like wants to be supportive. And but he's definitely not the victim here. And so. Yeah, the whole thing is just messy. And honestly, he needed this so bad for his career. Yeah. And I, even though he got the standing O and all of that stuff, no. I don't know if I don't know what's going to happen with him. I really don't. If I, if I were uh, working the boards, I would say sell your Will Smith stock Absolutely. now because I, mean, I, I, I don't see it at this point. I I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, he did. I I will say. No, I know he he's did. producing like Bel Air and stuff, and he's still doing. A, he'll be fine mo- uh, monetarily. Oh sure. But as far as like, is he gonna be able to to you know start off at the point of being a best actor winner? No, right. he's gonna. He has climbing to do to get back up there. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens there, but um. I know he he did issue an apology to the Academy and yeah. specifically Chris Rock, but and it was it was well written. It was exactly it what was should have been said. And again, uh, 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 we everybody has moments where mm-hmm. something. Now, if Chris, I will say this, and it's not going to happen. If Chris Rock, Will Smith did like an apology comedy tour of the U.S. for the next <laughs> year, and sure. they just like fucking roasted each other. And that was the show. 
then I think that might be the only thing I could see <laughs> saving him at this point, or or just something where they do something together. Yeah, and it's yeah. Obviously, all on water under the bridge. Maybe like a, a yeah. No, I. I mean, I, it would have to seem genuine, and it would have to be more than just like a Jimmy Kimmel bit or something. For sure, e- even whatever about their respective careers, I I don't even necessarily care about that. I I care about the broader ramifications. Yeah. I care about. The, the fact that people are so tense and so pent up right now. You know, I have a bunch of friends that are comedians that are like, I don't want people to just think they can walk on stage and slap me. Like, right. You know, if and- you're dealing with a heckler or something like that, it's interesting to see the comedy, the comedian's perspective on this, because there's definitely a take there that's specific to them. Um, yeah. And, and again, I'm I'm not even saying defending Chris Rock's joke or anything like that. I'm I'm not even right. saying, uh, uh, you know, that there isn't such a thing as, as tasteful boundaries. Uh, uh, but I am saying that it is never appropriate to walk on stage and punch someone in the middle of a performance. It is never no. okay. And what's wild was if Will Smith had had the foresight, I and mean, obviously he was reacting emotionally, so he wasn't yes. thinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, if if you would if we had just heard about this happening at an after party, sure. it would not have the same effect that it did on live TV. If he had waited, if he had exactly. just waited to get the award and be like, "Hey, Chris Rock, you know, I respect you as a comedian, but that joke wasn't it, and please don't talk about my wife anymore." Anyways, I want to thank so and so, so and so, and so and so. Then it would be an entirely different situation. Again, he was reacting emotionally. Yeah. yeah. And then the Academy sent the message that that's okay. And then they let out unintentionally. Yeah. Some fucking tweet about how they don't condone violence. Fuck you. you No, you literally did. You literally literally, awarded somebody. (laughs) Well, they didn't award him for the slap, but no, but but that's how it plays. Yeah. And you gave him. More well, stage time than anybody else, like uninterrupted. Right. You, you, uh, you did. And well, now, at that point, it was ABC, and they were more interested in making television than they were in respecting the austerity of the Oscars. But trash. You know. Okay, so that was the Oscars. We definitely <laughs> talked too much about that. Let's go ahead and talk about Turning Red, the newest Pixar film. Keith, I, you probably saw it more recently than I did. What happens in Disney's Turning Red? In Turning Red, there is a 13-year-old girl uh, named Maylin, and and she finds out that her family has this curse where when a woman comes of age in their family, they turn into a giant red panda. Like you do. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so she reaches that age. She turns into a panda. <laughs> Particularly, uh, it's not all the time. It's when she's stressed or when yeah, she's... it's when she's uh, emotional. It's when she's, you know, uh, 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 any, you know, it's when Chris Rock makes jokes about her wife. Uh, yeah, panda all the way. Yeah, it, you know, it's kind of a Hulk, like, you know, don't get her angry. Don't, you know, anytime she's feeling heightened emotion, she can transform into this panda. And her uh, her mother in particular uh, wants to hide this 
until the the next like harvest moon or or whatever until the next MacGuffin time mm-hmm. um, when they can perform this ritual and lock her panda away forever. And Maylin is embarrassed by this. She's uh, mortified, so that she just is locked in her room, you know, to wait out this this time of of pandaning um, until you know they can reverse this curse. But her friends, they're wondering what's going on with her. She hasn't been to school and she's been uh, really aloof. So they catch up with her. They think the panda thing isn't that big of a deal. And whenever she's around them, she seems to be able to to keep it under control. Uh, And so, you know, they get get this idea of, uh, well, let's let's monetize it so we can afford tickets to. A, a boy band concert. She's having fun. She's she's using this panda. She's seems to be able to control the panda versus the pin, panda controlling her. Um, the mother is voiced by Sandra O. Oh. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things I think help this movie a lot because while I was watching it, I was thinking, okay, like familiar beats. You know, it's obviously a coming of age thing. The panda, mm-hmm. the red panda, is a and not very thinly veiled. It is a metaphor for puberty. Well, and and they don't shy away from that. No, you know? I mean they they this is the only cartoon I can think of that I've seen where they actively show, you know, like feminine's uh, you know, menstrual hygiene products. Like they you yeah. know, that's what the mom thinks is happening at first. So she gives her uh, right. pads and tampons and and things and and right. and, it, and it embarrasses her and and there's all yeah. of that stuff. And uh and it's and, embarrassing you, and that's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm really okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they lean they lean into that joke, and then but you know structurally speaking, I was noticing um, a lot of similarities to uh, the Michael J. Fox uh, Teen Wolf, which is also a puberty metaphor, um, as well as uh, you know this whole idea of her hiding this 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 uh, plan to get all of her friends to go see this boy band. Mm. I was reminded a lot of uh, a goofy movie, um, which uses some similar tropes, but what I think kind of separates this movie from just kind of being a pastiche is the specificity where they can, where they can use it. So obviously there's a cultural specificity here. She's Mm -hmm. a second generation immigrant uh, living in Toronto, which is a city you don't normally see in children's animation, uh, particularly American animation. But I thought it was, you know, she run her and her family run this temple where people, it's kind of a tourist thing, but it's also like a place of worship and, and it's her way of sort of contributing to her family uh, tradition while still trying to be a young Canadian girl. Yeah. Um, and they set the movie in 2002. So this is pre cell phones or, you know, self like smartphones, smartphones. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I don't believe any of the characters are even carrying flip phones or anything like that, but uh, um, I think, I think she, there's someone has one at one point, I, right? It's not ubiquitous. Yeah. And, you know, so there, whenever you take smartphones and cell technology and streaming and all that kind of stuff out of the picture, it gives you a little bit more wiggle room in plotting things out, especially when you have characters who are keeping secrets. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that was, I think, a good move. Also, there's sort of a chronological specificity in, in setting it in 2002 as making kind of a period piece of having this, this boy band that looks very 2002. Yeah. Um, and sounds very 2002. I, I kind of went in not really expecting much. I, I, I figured it would be fine. And it, it starts out very fast. And, you know, the characters are talking over each other. Uh, the main character is, is kind of a bit much to start out with. Mm-hmm. But uh, once we get into the plot and once, you know, um, this curse reveals itself and the plot starts to reveal itself more and more, we get to know these characters on a deeper level. I was uh, really charmed by by the whole thing overall it does feel as a story kind of i don't know what's the word i want to use small in a way maybe light is better yeah like there's yeah because it doesn't i mean it's not like you know when it has those emotional moments it's not like it's not super heavy movie no it's not but i think i think that I think that also kind of leads to what you were saying about it, you know, reminding you of like a goofy movie, right? Sure. Like, you know, the stakes don't always have to be life or death. You know, they don't always have to be, uh, uh, it, it, you know, these incredibly big things because, you know, this is, a you know, intended for, uh, you know, young kids, uh, uh, you know, families. Um and you know, kids run a whole gamut of emotions. Like, sure, it, it's not all these big sagas. Like, you know, th- right. it, this is very relatable. Uh, and I think I if feel. you look at like the last crop of Disney films to come out, whether it be with Pixar or or outside of Pixar, specifically Luca and Canto and this, mm-hmm. um, there's a tonal similarity here where it's a lot more about the character arc, like the, the, the singular sort of perspective and, mm-hmm. and sort of overcoming a personal issue. I mean, that's in all movies, but in <laughs> specifically in, in uh, animated films that that is usually happening, but well, but, but like compare it to Ray and the last dragon, right? Yeah, Which it's not is- a, like a big journey movie. You know, it's not a bit, there's nothing, even like something like Finding Nemo. Or or Onward or. Right. Also came out recently or Soul. Like, yeah, I I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's not a quest. It's just, it's a little more slice of life. Yeah. And I actually, of those, I like Encanto a lot. We did talk a little bit about when we reviewed that, that there's some plot components that kind of feel truncated or a little glazed over in this one. I feel like everything is, is there on the, on a screenplay level. Like I never feel like, Oh, I wish I knew more about this or why aren't they talking about that? I, 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 yeah, I feel like this one is paced a little bit better than Encanto or Luca. Like it, it, it just, you know, and, and maybe it's because there are, they are playing into those pastiches, Mm. uh, but, but they're doing it, you know, I think well, it, it, the the, for, the format is there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the basic story elements are there. So what they get to do is fill in those details with specificity, and and I think they do that really well here. I think you know the the characters are really 
distinct and likable and and uh and like you said it's very charming mm-hmm. um I, I think the i mean i know every time we talk about a pixar movie i rave about the animation but in particular this one you know attempts kind of a new style like it it, it has uh you know kind of this um like some of the the you know it still has the 3d sort of cgi elements that we know for pixar disney but the frame rate is kind of heightened at times um the expressions are uh you know almost like anime kind of chibi style at times yeah there's Uh, a there there's more of a stylization to the to the animation yeah, that I just I think is a really cool like I just think it's so cool to see them playing with that in these movies. Like I you know I thought the same thing about Luca. Like it almost had a um, you know kind of a Wallace and Gromit like claymation vibe. This has almost you know anime elements that I think are really cool. You you know they they got it down. They've got the the CGI. 3d elements down that now they can really tone like dial into style in just amazing beautiful ways like this this movie's no exception it's gorgeous it's fun the characters are cute like it's it's really uh uh, just eye candy Mm -hmm. and i think of the last few of these we've seen this is one of the funnier like I think yeah. that's what that's what kind of I eventually like relaxed my shoulders a little bit and like okay I'm gonna like this is by like minute twenty or so I'd had three or four good chuckles the dialogue yeah. is pretty is pretty well dialed in Sandra O oh is really funny in here and she's kind of playing the stereotypical helicopter mom perfectionist immigrant mother yeah that we've seen in a lot of things um, kind of recently but. I think she uh, I really like the relationship with her and her husband mm-hmm. and the way that plays out sort of in the background um, without hammering it in a really obvious way. Yeah, um, I, I also think uh, they, you know, I like the relationship with the grandmother and the way mm-hmm. the way that there's stuff that's implied, but it never has to be like spelled out. I think there might have been a a truncated flashback, but you know what I mean? Like there's, an yeah, they don't, they don't spend a lot of time on it. We sort of know what's going on. We sort of know yeah. how this, the family dynamic operates and, and um, you know, this, the, the curse isn't just, just there as a metaphor for puberty or just for comedic hijinks, but there's also sort of a overall metaphor of a generational parent to daughter, relationship complications and and toxicities that have to be worked through as well and that this particular character is sort of there to break that cycle yeah um and that's what works i mean that's what makes it a story and that's the stuff that all that all comes together but but i wouldn't have cared as much if if it wasn't funny which i think it is yeah um and if it didn't make those interesting choices of setting and, um, you know, dating it in 2002 and kind of creating something just a little bit more specific and a little off the beaten path. Yeah. It just, just a little more its own thing. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, 
and, and that's I, kind of what I'm talking about. Like, I think ever since onward, really, we've seen Disney and Pixar takes take some risks with the, the stuff they're putting out. Um, and I think that's really cool. Like, I don't know. I've just really been, I, I think they're on a pretty good streak right now. I, but when haven't they been? Well, Guess I, I, actually, I think they're on a something streak. I, I'm, I think I'm not going to be as forgiving about that. I think they're kind of treading water. I think they're, I wouldn't necessarily say that their last five or so films have been particularly risky. I think that they're trying new stuff. And Luca is a lot is a lot smaller of a story, mm. um, and it takes place in a, in a much more like localized area. And it doesn't really it's not again not a, a big journey movie. Um, I will say I at this point going forward, I would like to see particularly from Pixar, um, but I'll, I would take it from Disney too. I I kind of want to see him go big again. I'm not saying it has to be you know an action movie or something like that. And Ryan, the last dragon had a lot of action and mm-hmm. was, was very much a big movie, but I want to see, I, you know, I haven't seen something on the scale of like Wally or up or even like toy story three in a while from these studios. And I, I don't know if it's I, just because it's the stories that they've decided to tell, or if it's because they're working up to it or if they're just lost interest in that. I don't know, but I would like to see them do something on a, on a bigger scale again. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on that. I I think, I I think that, um, I don't know, to me onward had that same kind of scale and feel and, and world building and sure. um, and and you know and i think that movie feels a lot further away because they've produced so much in such a short amount of time like you know that came out in 2020 that's not that long ago so i i mean i i get what you're saying like yeah i would like to see them maybe like go for another tent pull because they you know that i don't know i, don't I mean know. encanto was in the theaters forever yeah uh, that movie did really well and and it, and Again, I really like that movie and I really like this movie, too. Um, there's nothing wrong with them. And in fact, I give this like a B plus. This is that's that's where I'm with it right now. But uh, I, the only reason I'm not about. I'm not feeling a about it is because, again, it's it's unfair to them, but I'm grading on their own curve. And I've seen things by the studio that have reached for the stars. This feels a little bit more like reaching for the moon. Um, which is more achievable, and they do, but uh, but it does feel a little smaller stakes, not just in plotting, but you in know, execution. I I I don't totally disagree with you, um, but uh, you know, I also think like using the the goofy movie analogy that you gave, sure, uh, a beloved yeah. film, yeah, I think a B plus is about right, maybe an A minus. I I don't know. There's nothing wrong with this. I I think it's uh, absolutely charming and funny, and I think it's a great mother daughter story. And you know, as far as mother daughter stories of people turning into animals, I think this accomplishes everything Brave was getting at much better. I I also think I also think it is 
kind of an important movie for Disney because it doesn't shy away from the the feminine aspect of it from you know the, mm-hmm. because a, a girl's coming of age story is going to be very different from a boy's coming of age story and they don't they don't hide that you know and I, I think that's admirable so you know what fuck it I've talked myself into it I'm gonna I'm giving it an A minus okay uh uh yeah I think I think this movie's just full of humor and charm and great animation. And, and, you know, it is, if we're going to be telling stories for girls and women, then yeah, I, I think it's important to treat it with love and respect. So yeah, A-. no, I, I don't have a problem with, with that grade. I now what's all the controversy about? I don't totally under, is it just because of it, the metaphor? Is it like, I don't entire I, Oh, you've been, missed you've been, you missed that discourse. Okay. Well, it's very annoying. Um, so strap in. But uh, basically, the Cliff's Notes version of it. The Cliff's Notes version is there was a a reviewer for I want to say Screen Rant or or no Cinema Blend. One of the main one of the main critics for Cinema Blend. One of the main editors over there. He wrote a review for it, and he basically said something to the effect of like because it's about a young girl living in an Asian district of Toronto that it's so specific. It's going to ice everybody else out. Um, That was essentially his, his review is that it's, you know, it's not as universal as other Pixar films was his, his take Um, Twitter had a meltdown. I mean, that's a terrible take, but it's not great. It's not great. And of course, everybody was like, what? So like you can imagine yourself as an ant or you can imagine yourself as a fish, but you can't imagine yourself as a 13 year old girl. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that was kind of like the rebuttal. And he got hammered so hard online that he eventually took the review down, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think I think critics should stand by their words. Well, sure. And if if he couldn't connect to the material like you know yeah i mean that's that's, if that's the way you feel that's the way you feel now you can be wrong yeah and you can have a shitty review and you can have a shitty take but i mean that's what his review was but anyway so he took the review down issued an apology blah 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 that was one part of the discourse the other part of the discourse issued an apology oh he did i mean it was bad there All were people right. who were like demanding that cinema one fires him. Like it got fiery, All right. which I, again, I don't agree with the mob mentality behind all of that, but I also like, don't think his, his take was, was great. He just needed one person to walk up and slap him and then it'd be over. <laughs> well, I think if he weren't the key editor of, of the website, he might have had an editor above him to say, maybe let's word this in a way that's a little less spicy or a little, you know, like a, a little I'm bit more saying. sensitive. So, yeah, there was there was that there was a, a backlash against backlash. And then there was also a right wing grifter backlash as there is oh. to a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I have a lot of, of you know, a lot of people funny. who were saying that this movie is like anti-family and that it's all about like what? young about young women telling their mothers no and and keeping secrets and, what? and that it's a bad influence and that it is 
all of these uh, teenage characters are like drooling over boys and that's bad. Like just total Pat Robertson conservative meltdown. I mean, okay. Uh, Teenagers drool over other teenagers. That's what happens. And, uh, uh, and it, it's not about that at all. She, you know, like eventually the family has to come together because Right. They're uh, that's how uh, right. that's how stories work. Ah! Right. And, and of course, like this is it's just, it's it's a drummed up culture war because that's everything now, um, mm. because obviously Disney movies have been have have been featuring young protagonists who are disagreeing with their parents forever, including a goofy movie uh, where well, he like reroutes their fishing trip so he can go see Powerline. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, so he can impress a girl. <laughs> to be fair, most Disney movies don't have a contentious uh, uh, child parental uh, relationship because most Disney movies, the child is a fucking orphan. <laughs> <laughs> right. If their parents don't get cacked in the first reel, then <laughs> then the other the other way they go is they try and hide things from them until eventually it comes out, and then eventually they have to like have a coming to Jesus moment with their own parent. And that's, you know, yeah. I mean, that's what these movies are. That's like, that's what, yeah. yeah. It's so that all happened while we were, you know, on vacation, but um, uh, yeah, I turning red, I endorse it. I think it's cute movie. Mothers and daughters should watch it especially. Um, And uh, I think it is uh, in its specificity becomes universal. So, you know, I, that's what I would say to Mr. Cinema blood. Sure. Also, please hire me. (laughs) Um, Let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework, which I signed us. Uh, Neither of us had seen it. Uh, We watched this on Hulu. uh, Vox Lux from 2017. uh, 2018. 2018. It came out a little while ago. Kind of came and went. This is uh, released by Neon, the independent film production studio, and it was uh, co-written and directed by actor Brady Corbett. So I might remember from, you know, weird little indie things like he was in Martha Marcy May Marlene. He was in Funny Games. He was in Mysterious Skin. Um, If you've been made uncomfortable by an indie film in the last 12 years, he was probably in one of them. (laughs) So Vox Lux tells the story of a young performer named Celeste. Uh, This is also sort of takes place in the early 2000s and has a lot to do with its time period. Celeste, uh, we we see at the beginning of the movie, the first opening scene, uh, Celeste is in music class and she's talking very casually with her friends and her teacher. And then all of a sudden a school shooter comes in and uh, kills the teacher and takes out a few students before the SWAT team comes and you know stops the incident. And she is a survivor. Uh, she's grazed uh, by the violence, or you know, she has a, a, a neck issue, which for the rest of the film she has either some sort of like um, you know bandage or healing device, or or um, in some of her later costuming has a neck piece to it. So it becomes you know, sort of a part of her character that this scar she carries around with her for the rest of her life and this inner turmoil and uh, uh, trauma from the event itself. Her and her sister kind of write a song 
in memoriam to the uh, victims of the school shooting. And she gets noticed by a producer uh, played by uh, or a manager played by Jude Law, who decides that she's quite good. And she sort of goes like viral um, with this this song she wrote that's in conjunction with this news event. And uh, they decide they're going to they're going to go for it. You know, she's going to she's about 14 years old and she's going to go to Sweden, record an album with the hit makers and they're recording videos. And she's already on a pathway to doing uh, bigger and bigger performances and going places with her career. We then jump time to present day where she is now played by uh, Natalie Portman, who so we do kind of see sort of inter, inter, interspatially between these two moments that she was beginning, you know, she comes from a more like a religious background and her and her sister, like don't even want people swearing around them at the beginning of the movie. But then once she's, you know, away, she sort of becomes uh, seduced by the, uh, extravagant lifestyle of being a performing musician and being away from home for the first time. And she gets involved in, in drugs and boys and, and all of the stuff that comes with that, the sort of seedy underbelly of the entertainment industry. And when we meet her as an adult uh, now played by Natalie Portman, she is uh, sort of on the other side of that. So now she has like a string of controversies that she's trying to live down she has a big album coming out and a new album cycle that's supposed to sort of reestablish her um, after a car accident that is caused by her, it sends her down a publicity wormhole. And she getting ready to gear up for this album release when uh, there is another violent incident in which a bunch of armed terrorists shoot up a beach wearing uh, the costuming or the masks from one of her most famous videos. Um, so she also is trying to sort of deal with that on a, on a uh, publicity level and seem, you know, try and use her past trauma as a way of leveraging this current situation while also hoping that she can parlay that into a successful album cycle and this return, yeah, she's going to do in her in her home city. She's going to do this big performance, and that's how it's all supposed to resolve itself. Um, what did you think? I think okay. I'm just going to get my overall thoughts because there's a lot in this. There's a lot of movie in this movie. Yeah, and I think this movie has some really great moments. And I think overall it's ambitious in what it's trying to accomplish, Mm -hmm. but it can't, I don't know. To me, it doesn't feel like all the threads ever get totally connected Mm -hmm. because there's kind of this, this story of, uh, you know, of um, violence and trauma and generational trauma. And uh, you know, it's very, it's very millennial story um, you know, it's not a coincidence that the shooting happens in 1999. They reference 9-11, uh, you know, and then later the sh- shootings are more extravagant. So there's on, on one hand, there's this story of, of uh, yeah, generational trauma due to violence. 
And then on the other hand, there's this sort of story about, uh, you know, the, the dangers of pop superstardom and, you know, giving away your identity. And there's times when these two themes work together. And then there's mm-hmm. times when it feels like they're kind of at odds with each other. And, the, and, and that one part of the story kind of, kind of gets forgotten and then it'll come back. And then, you know what I mean? Like, right. Uh, I feel like not all of the, the connective tissue is there. I agree. And, and I think that the thematic gesturing is more impressive than the end result. Yeah. I yeah. think because I understood like, you know, they draw this connection between like post 9-11 paranoia and sort of this global trauma that yeah. we've yet to really heal from and instead have sort of buried in our buried our heads in the sand of like pop culture banality and that Which- eventually that trauma is going to surface resurface in a way that we have yet to really deal with either. So I think that arc works. Yes. Unfortunately, the vessel for that story is just this kind of humdrum rise and fall story of this. Yeah. You know, this girl, this kind of like rock a doodle with Natalie Portman. (laughs) And, and I think, yeah, that's kind of the stuff that doesn't, work as well is like and and it feels uh, i feel like we spend way too much time in the first half with uh, her as a teen mm-hmm. um which uh who who plays her younger self slash daughter uh she played by rafi cassidy rafi rafi cassidy yes who uh she was uh also in um killing of the sacred deer she played the daughter in that yeah, um, and I, I think she's great in this. I mean, she's, uh, I, I mean, everybody is churning out solid performances. Oh, I don't think Natalie Portman is. You I think, think her so? performance is a problem, especially <laughs> because the beginning of the movie, um, the younger actress who's playing the younger self doesn't act like that at all. And then in the. Well, yeah, but she's, you know, the, you know, 15 years past, I don't act the same as I did when I was 18 more similar than you realize probably but Mm. (laughs) i mean you are still hearing that (laughs) (laughs) what what i mean is you still sound regionally the same um natalie portman it sounds like she's doing an impression of margot roby's doing harley quinn like it's this over the top Long Island, Staten Island, Rhode Island. I don't remember Chilean. Her her dialect is is sketchy. It is weird, especially because I, I thought at first it was um, she was Canadian because the the young Celeste I thought had kind of a Canadian accent, but um, I might yeah, be was, the actress. I don't know, but but yeah, I mean she she just sounds like a normal girl, and then uh, you know with a with a kind of a generic American accent. North American accent. And then she goes into sounding like, like what was that one um, sketch on SNL with Scarlett Johansson selling the waterbeds? You remember which one I'm <laughs> yeah. talking about? I just don't buy her as this character. I don't buy her doing this accent. It feels like she's doing like a sketch 
even though she it's supposed to take it seriously at face value. It was a weird decision to have the same actress who played her younger self then play her daughter without adding something distinguishing, like a shorter haircut or some glasses or just fucking anything. Well, I don't know. That wasn't the weird thing was they didn't do any like there. What was the point of that? Right. Like, like, I, I get it. You know, she's I mean, it's an indie film. They're probably saving some money doing that. No, no, no. But but what I mean is, like, it felt like there was a story purpose for that. And right. I, I yeah. figured I figured, like, you know, that somehow this, like, generational trauma was going to transfer over to her. And, you know, and it kind of but not really. You know what I mean? Like, right. Because we kind we're suppo- of see that, you know, her Celeste issues spilling over onto her. Mm-hmm. But we never we never get that, like, you know, definitive traumatic moment and, and, well, and we, we never, never get to know the character well enough to really yeah. establish that so we never see how it affects her at all it, right you know, what we she, do know about her about her daughter is that and about their relationship is that celeste has been kind of busy with her own bullshit in her own life and her own career that her daughter's essentially been raising herself a little bit and her sister who she's sort of estranged from now um who was a big component of her of her musical comeuppance is is kind of doing more of the mother role and so i mean i there's a family dynamic there but it doesn't seem to fit into that overall theme. I, I also i also think that there was something that they were maybe trying to imply with uh like jude law possibly grooming her or something but all i think there was sort is- of an idea yeah there of of like the the industry itself is predatory, but again, it, that's like, it's funny. Cause you know, it's a two hour film or pretty close to it, but it doesn't feel like on a, on a story level, it really accomplishes that much. Well, I, I think I was pretty with the movie until the time jump. And I was, and I was too. The Natal and like, and it was just, I felt like that, they didn't really have anything new to say. Like there was this other shooting that she had to sort of deal with, but she never really does in any meaningful way. You know, she just kind of gets high and acts like a, a diva. And, and that's what I mean when I say those themes, like they never totally lined up again. And, and right. I think well, it's kind I mean, of a if shame. We're supposed to, if we're supposed to see Natalie Portman, as a embodiment of culture at large and sort of the uh, the way the pop culture mirrors or reflects or deflects. um, Yeah, I mean, uh, she even says she likes pop music because then she just doesn't have to think about it. Yeah, she can turn her brain off and and doesn't have to think. And of course, you know, the whole movie is about trauma and the whole movie, like, that's the thing. It's like all of that stuff is neat on a writing level, but it, it, it doesn't really come together on a story level, mostly because yeah. of that second half. I just feel like that. It just feels like it's spinning. It's tires kind of. Yeah, exactly. A it, movie it, that kind of plays around with similar kind of a similar structure. And also the idea of a, uh, a celebrity of a certain age, who's dealing with a past who they're trying to live down and trying to sort of rebrand themselves. And, and while at the same time dealing with all of this personal stuff 
And it's not even a movie that I love, but I think kind of accomplishes all of this slightly better is the movie Birdman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that movie, you know, especially since we're it, they fully commit to the sort of short, shorter time period. This movie is a little bit trying for more. It's a bit more sprawling. But then that second half, like, I don't know, it almost feels like they lost budget or something and they had to like cut out 30 pages well there there's also and this is nitpicky this is very um surface level but there's this like concert at the end that's supposed to be this big like comeback concert and you know it it Mm -hmm. it looks like somebody who's trying to imitate a, a pop star concert but they definitely clearly don't have the budget you know because i'm like give her at least one costume change and the, the background dancers are just in like skin tight Lycra. You know, I've seen Lady Gaga in concert. I've seen Katy Perry in concert. If, if that's what we're doing, if that's what we're trying to culturally talk about, it doesn't even totally capture the, the pop elements. Right. Because uh, you know, the, the presentation should be, over the top insane and i get that they're kind of going for that but the costumes seem like pretty tame in comparison to you know and i feel like if that's something you want to have a conversation about you can go even bigger with that stuff yeah i don't know it it just i agree showed the budget i think at the end there yeah i think it was the most for me it was like i thought the costuming was fine um and it looked like if you were there, if you were in the audience, it would look like a show. But the way that it was presented, uh, cinematography, like the the shot selection and the cutting, was just wasn't that impressive. And and, and there, there's like these weird cuts. It felt like when they went and did that set piece, they didn't really have a clear idea of what they wanted when they got there. So they just kind of filmed a show and then yeah. from a bunch of angles and then just kind of cut it together. But, I, but that's what I mean. Like the, it, even the pro- show felt too small. Like, right. you know, it, it, it should have for been as, for as big as it is thematically. And that's the, that's the main issue. It, yeah. If we are to compare this to black Swan, which is probably unfair because they're not the same movie really at all, but yeah, both know. movies kind of end in a denouement that. I think is supposed to kind of wrap things up into its themes. And obviously this movie doesn't have the magic realist element that you can get, get into all that stuff. Um, But there should have been something a bit more visceral about it and a bit more, I I, I think from from her perspective, like I, I, I really felt like we were just either on side stage or from the audience and it never felt like I was experiencing this, this, final sequence as celeste which we should be well and then and and i'm not going to spoil it um uh you know maybe we can take just a moment to talk about this after um what i say uh so there's also this uh like willem dafoe narration right right that kind of spells some things out and and at the very end he drops this you know they drop this narration that gives this indication i don't know maybe i should just say it, it it's implied that she, at least when she got shot she 
you know, in her near death experience, uh, she, at least from her experience, she saw the devil and sold her soul to the devil. Right. And I, I was like, well, that's cool. Why wasn't any of that in the rest of the movie? And, and, you know, I get what it's trying to say is, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, selling her, her identity to pop music is, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I get a loss of innocence and yeah, exactly. Blah, 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 blah. But and and that was like one could say that the event, both the events of like Columbine and or shootings like Columbine and 9-11 has as is sort of the same sort of loss of innocence for the yeah, country, yeah. for the world. Absolutely. I mean, I get I, that they're doing all of that, but I feel like that information would have been a lot more relevant either think, yeah. earlier, perhaps. Yeah. Well, because so again, there's there's these implications, right? Like uh, yeah. and then the, when this narration is happening, there's a shot lingering kind of on Jude Law and it's like the lights are red on him. And, right. you know, again, yeah. he represents uh, this, you know, commercialized entertainment industry, uh, mm. you know, and they say uh, when she was shot, all, all she saw was color and that like the end shot of the movie is the color of like her first album. And like, there's all this stuff, but I felt like, it was just kind of too little too late. Right. And and there was already so many other things that they were trying to balance that mm. they didn't quite connect that. I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I just wanted some of that magical realism from black Swan. And, and, you know, I feel like I, the I, movie is, is trying to do it without doing it. Exactly. And um, I, and I, I feel, feel like, like it, it, it just needed to commit. Yes. Like if that, you know, the, she talks about how this this album Fox Lux that she's releasing is going to be like these sci-fi ballads and all of this stuff. Like, fucking do it then. Like, let's get weird. Yeah, let's see her <laughs> losing her shit. Let's see her breaking yeah. from reality. But instead, she just kind of seems like an asshole. <laughs> yeah, we just we just kind of follow her around. It kind of feels, you know, like I said, it's like. Birdman meets uh, Madonna's Truth or Dare, and but even even Birdman had those elements of magic. Yeah, at least it, it it broke a little bit and and played around with that. And and maybe they were just because of the Natalie Portman thing, they just didn't want to evoke Black Swan too much. But I, they clearly did because, like, look at any of the publicity shots. Sure, you'd swear it was a poster for Black Swan. Right. Yeah. I mean, they—that's definitely how they decided to sell the movie. But that isn't the movie they had. No. Um, exactly. I yes. It's kind of—it's a frustrating movie because it, there's a lot of talent involved, but it's none of it is greater than the sum of its parts. It it never comes together. It it's kind of well, it's it, it's just a lot of. Uh, you know, sticky notes on a writer's board that just didn't come together. It, it's frustrating as a movie because I feel like the first two acts were there. Mm -hmm. uh, like I, it, like the the shooting scene is truly horrific. It, it, it yeah, that really... first scene I was I I mean I, I haven't jumped at a movie in a long time. I, that that it I felt me. that in my chest. Yeah. yeah, and and I I wish I wish the movie had made us feel it a little bit more not not that but you know like the the lingering feelings the the 
the it shit certainly, that we're all living with every fucking day in this country. Like, right. I think that, that that colors the rest of the movie, but he kind of like kind of runs out of ink on that. You yeah, know, like it, 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 it's it, a bummer because I, I, I think I think the third act is where it falls apart. I think the first two, mm. you know, I think all the stuff with her as a kid uh, uh, works for the most part. Right. Um, and they just needed this climax to kind of, you know, actually land address these issues and, and themes that they were. It just felt like they were playing with them and then they would put them back in the toy box. Yeah, I agree. The movie ultimately it just doesn't come together. Um, I, I guess I'm glad I saw it. It's 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 worth a watch, sort of. But I, I think it is. I mean, I again, I think there's some great moments in this movie. I, yeah, I think I think it's worth watching, and the themes that they're discussing are, are are worth exploring. And and you know, again, I think in particular people of our generation are going to feel those moments mm-hmm. uh, pretty hard. So I, I think it's worth your time. It's just unfortunately flawed and, and ultimately leaves you kind of feeling nothing. Yeah. And certainly wanting more. Um, but it, I would be interested to see what Brady Corbett does as a director going forward. If he, sure. if he's able to kind of iron out some of this, I think there is, talent there i it just isn't um fully realized absolutely i i I think this isn't i mean this is an ambitious movie it 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 is really going for it it just it it just doesn't totally work for the whole thing agreed so what do you have as our streaming homework next episode for our next episode we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to watch uh the steve martin comedy roxanne Mm -hmm. uh, which is streaming on hulu yes and if anybody has anything to say about the topics brought up in this episode or past you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com you can uh find us on spotify apple player.fm pocketcasts the uh, Windows Podcast Network. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review. It helps people uh, see the show. It pushes us up in the algorithm. So if you haven't done that yet, please do. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at MacGuffinPod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me individually on Instagram and Twitter at VC Cassidy. And uh, you can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. That'll take you to the page where they upload uh, movie reviews. And I believe that's all I have on my end. If you're in the San Diego area and you want to um, check out the play I'm in right now, uh, I'm performing in Murder on the Orient Express at the Coronado Playhouse. This will run every Thursday through Sunday until April 16th. There's no show on Easter. You can get your tickets at coronadoplayhouse.org, I believe, uh, is the website. And yeah, I mean, we put a lot of work into this show. I think it's a it's a really good show. That Our set design is incredible. Such an involved, moving set. It's really gorgeous. I think... Um, uh, it's styled after the artist Edward Gorey, and there's like moving panels and periactoy, and it's, I think, really pretty. 
yeah, so come check that out. Uh, sir, our last show is the Saturday before Easter. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. And you can check out my uh, art account, my drawing account at Sticky Note Aesthetic. All right. And that is the episode. Uh, my panda, my choice. There we go. Bye.